Hello, my name is Camille Dungy, and I'm really happy to be here with Poet Kind podcast talking with you all. I'm going to start with a poem from my book, Trophic Cascade. And this is, in fact, the first poem in the book Natural History. The Rufus Hummingbird builds her nest of moss and spider webs and lichen. I held one once, smaller than my palm, but sturdy. I would have told Mrs. Jeffers from Court Street if in those days of constant flights between California and Virginia, I'd wandered into that Oakland Museum. Any chance I could, I'd leave my rented house in Lynchburg. I hated the feeling of stuckness that old city's humidity implied. You need to stop running away so much, Mrs. Jeffers would say when my visits were over and I leaned down to hug her. Why her words come to me, the woman dead for the better part of this new century, while I think of that nest of web and lichen, I cannot rightly say. She had once known my mother's parents, the whole lot of them, even then, in their twenties, must already have been as old as God. They were black. The kind name for them in those days would have been Negroes. And the daily elections called for between their safety and their sanity must have torn even the strongest of them down. Mr. Jeffers had been a laborer, the sort I regret I don't remember. He sat on their front porch all day near his oxygen tank, waving occasionally to passing Buicks and Fords, praising the black walnut that shaded their yard. She would leave the port sometimes to prepare their meals. I still have her yeast roll recipe, the best I've ever tried. Mostly, though, the same Virginian breeze that encouraged Thomas Jefferson's tomatoes passed warmly through their porch eaves while we listened to the swing chains, and no one talked or moved too much at all. Little had changed in that house since 1952. I guess it's no surprise they come to mind when I think of that cup of spider webs and moss made softer by the feathers of some long gone bird. She used to say, I like it right here where I am in my little house here with him. I thought her small minded. In the winter, I didn't visit very often. Their house was closed up and overheated. Everything smelled of chemical mothballs. She had plastic wrappers on the sofas and chairs. Everyone must have once held someone as old and small and precious as this. Welcome to Poet Kind Podcast. This week, Camille Dungy joins me for a terrific conversation about the way poetry can be used to shape the world we live in. We'll catch up after the interview. So for now, let's just dive right in. Today, I am welcoming Camille Dungy. You just heard her read Natural History. Camille, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on Poet Kind. I'm absolutely delighted. And um, Camille will know the backstory. I'm very grateful that that's happened. <laughs> so uh, thank you for being here. I'm really happy to be here. I so appreciate that you read Natural History uh, to open the podcast with. This kind of embodies a lot of what I saw in your work. And I hope you don't mind me starting 
just right there. Um, there's such a physicality it. to it. The sounds, uh, the sense, the hearing, you know, everything is so sensorial, but yet grounded into this, um, this beautiful little nest, how it comes back. And it's just so, it's just like perfectly rounded. It comes all the way around and it just, thank you so much for opening with that. Thank you. I, I think, you know, that's one of those poems where when I think back on it, it feels like it just sprung fully out of my head. But then I look back at old notebooks and things and I see all the kind of drafts and false starts and um, other lines of inquiry that I tried to tack onto it that don't, didn't fit in it. And so it does in the end feel like it had to always only be this way. Um, and it's always interesting even to me as the maker to, to realize that moment when something clicks in and you think this is the way that this has to be. And it becomes easy to discard all of those false starts. Yeah. So it's gratifying to hear that it, it works for you, the reader also. Yeah, well, that's, it's great to hear you talk about that process. Um, you know, you'll hear poets say, oh, it just came to me all at once. But you always kind of have that hesitancy to accept that because you know that there's either a line or something that they've been thinking about for ages, you know, right. until things click, it doesn't, it doesn't come fully formed. It's right. like, it's like nobody ever arrives. It's the 10 years that goes before it that gets that goes there. into it. Yeah. And all of those, I mean, we call them false starts or I call them false starts, but I, I think that that's unfair. Um, there are stretches or, or warm-ups or first laps or something that is crucial and necessary to the, to the final performance. Um, you couldn't have that really great sprint without having like being really loose and limber beforehand. Um, so I remember really specifically with this that I was, I was visiting um, Connecticut um, and I, for, I was in California, I was living in California again by that point um, and visiting Connecticut and, um, and noticed these like, the ways that the water was melting in a spring runoff, which just like doesn't happen in the same way right. in California. Um, and, and my mind was going East Coast, West Coast, East Coast, West Coast, and thinking about just water in that way. And water doesn't show up in this poem, but without that kind of migratorial mind that I was doing while visiting the East Coast, I don't think I would have ever gotten into, oh yeah, and that hummingbird nest. And, and then, you know, and in fact, I was like, what is Mrs. Jennings doing in this poem? And right, all of those kinds of um, happy accidents that happened after I let myself go into that idea of migration and differences of those two coasts. A lot of your pieces, you know, your book one is just beautiful. There's a physicality even in the essence of your book. It's a hardback book. It is so visually just delicious to go through and see how the things are, your, your writing is laid out on the page and then these beautiful transitional pages. All of your poems have this, this tangibility to them. You take us into the experience through all the senses um, and you tell these wonderful stories and, but you also make the hard things very accessible without, you know, some poetry is very hard, it's harsh and it, it's hard to read it or you read it because you know you should. Hmm. A lot of your pieces, I'll read them and I'll be like, oh, this is lovely and oh, wait a minute. No, I just, I just learned something, <laughs> you know, it's, you take us by the hand and lead us to these beautiful places that are not just pretty, mm -hmm. you know, they have these wonderful presence, this wonderful presence to them. And I, I mean, I opened with natural history because I do think that it is um, a poem that defines a part of my poetic ethos um, pretty 
um, thoroughly, and it's part of why it opens the collection. Um, and then it combines these questions of, of the environmental um, space around us, but also the history, right? This, mm -hmm. Our cultural histories um, and our social political histories and yes. personal histories um, and the difference between um, youth and age and experience and um, knowledge, how we hold knowledge. So the poem is purposefully doing a lot of the kinds of things that um, are important to me on a kind of larger ideological or philosophical um, wavelength, but also I think another kind of way of thinking about our multiple intelligences and experiences has to do with the senses, as you say. And so it is important to me uh, that I engage as many senses as possible in my writing, because most of us are not solely visual or solely um, auditory or solely focused on taste. Like we mingle those things and the more layers that you can have, the more in touch with the reality of our experiences of the world that I can be in my poems. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, I had just finished reading, it was maybe three or four different books of poetry that really had to do with the environment. And so I was thinking environmentally when I grabbed Trophic Cascade. Um, and it was after mm -hmm. I had seen you on the Ecotheos uh, reading that you did. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, with Amy Nassau Yeah, yeah. And I thought, this will be wonderful. And I started reading it and, and yes, I love the fact that it's not just, you're talking about the issues that have, have been part of our cultural heritage, unfortunately, and fortunately. So there's, there are these mm -hmm. deep connections with, just to be specific from the poem, you know, the, the older people in our lives, but also um, race issues. And you hit those throughout mm -hmm. the book in such a way that it's like, this is, you know, I, I take it with me much longer than some of the harder hitting books that I've read, where after a while I, I feel exhausted and I'm, maybe that's not a great criticism, but some books you read and at the end of it, it's like, okay, I did it, <laughs> you know, but this is, this is like having, having, a wise interpreter sit across from you and tell you something and you go, oh, that's so well crafted and so well phrased that, you know, somebody might read it twice and go, oh, wait a minute, I'm just now getting this. And then it will mean so much more. Is that, is that an okay thing to say? I think that that's an okay thing to say. And then I think another um, aspect of it that's important to me is, is again, this kind of concept of layering. Like I don't experience my life just as, just as a black woman who's always, um, always on the defensive and always under attack and things are just horrible all the time. That's just not how I experience yeah. my reality thing fully. Um, there's much joy and much beauty and much pleasure and much friendship and camaraderie and, um, and other kinds of experiences in my life. And so if I'm going to fully describe at least my Black woman experience in this country, I have to describe it in that fullness. Um, and that fullness means pain and frustration and suffering and anguish, but it also means joy and beauty and celebration and freedom, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so I want all of those in my poems, at least in my book, maybe not always all in a single poem, but I want them all to be um, part of the reality that you can navigate as you move through my books. Yeah. Well, you do it so well. And I have to say, I've gone back to your book several times just because when I read it, it's like this, this, oh, I can breathe. I can breathe. This is, this is good. This is true. This is beautiful. And okay, now I can go back to scrubbing what the floor, whatever I was doing and feel like I've had 
a good experience. I'm going to backtrack a little bit here because usually I start the interview by asking you to talk a little bit about yourself. Now you've had some, you just started a new position with Orion. As the poetry editor. Yeah. And then you had a great, um, something come along in the last week or so. You got to speak at the DNC and I um, spoke as part of the Council for the Environmental and Climate Crisis at the DNC, and I was able to speak for a couple minutes and read one of my poems at the end of the council meeting. Yeah, and I was really grateful that somebody um, videotaped it <laughs> with their phone, it looked like, because I was, I was hoping to get to watch it, and life is life, and I, I missed it when it was being broadcast, but um, I got to watch it and it was wonderful. And it was um, such a treat to see you speak. I, I mean, it was, a, it was a pleasure to be able to speak. I've been a, a highly kind of politically active person my, um, my entire life. And so to be able to be part of the DNC in that way with poetry and uh, with my environmental um, activism, both on the forefront um, and also my kind of vested interest in uh, a kind of uh, broader, maybe ecumenical, non-religious ecumenical um, kind of um, acceptance of, of the value of life. Like, so that was all really important um, to me, but also just purely the idea that, um, that that poetry has a place in our political conversations um, and that politics has a place in our poetic conversations, right? That um, that's heartening to me. Um, there have been definitely times in our culture where we've talked about um, the importance of separating those two. I, I don't, I don't believe that that's possible. And so I am always excited when I see um, these kinds of acts, um, spaces of power, political power, uh, opening space for the poetic imagination, the literary imagination, the artistic imagination, and whatever. Wouldn't it be great if there could have been like a dance or something <laughs> like that, right? So you get like that, that music. We have music, right? Yeah. There's some amazing music. And so those kinds of other ways of, of, of engaging, again, the broader varieties of imagination, the different kinds of ways that we experience experience reality um, and digest reality and um, and shape reality. And so it was just excited that, exciting to me that poetry, um, both through my own poem and through a couple of the references throughout the um, convention, um, was able to be front and center in that way. Yeah, that's exciting. And, and you're right, the, the marriage of all these creative uh, energies, I think it's been parsed out in different ways, um, you know, not, not to diss the church, but so often art in the church is simply music mm -hmm. or it's simply liturgy or, um, you know, if you're a visual artist, and this was my personal experience years ago when I was still a part of the church, was to, um, you're an artist, would, would you take care of the plants? <laughs> You know, it's like, so there's, there's, there's a disconnect between, and whether that, that's how um, school is raising up our children to understand the arts or. Right. Or, or maybe if you're not in charge of organizing the plants on the altar or something, then, then you're to draw the depiction um, of the, of the for the Easter service of the 13 stations of the cross like you have to do this kind of literal illustration yeah. of, of as opposed to creating a kind of abstract art piece that's a representation of something or just a reaction or a response which is yeah. um I think you're saying like is it something about schools I think with poetry in particular one of the reasons that people uh, feel that they're so afraid of poetry is is how it's taught, and I um 
I'm not saying this to cast dispersions on teachers. They have too many things that they have to do exactly. in their lives. Yeah. And, they're, and they're not taught, right? Like they're not given the kind of tools. And so I like to talk to teachers and to people who are trying to teach themselves again to come to um, appreciate poetry. I'd like to talk to them about it in the same way that I talk about um, that we think about appreciating food, right? If I put a bowl of spaghetti in front of you, there are a number of ways that you can experience that spaghetti, but for the most, like a completely valid way is to simply say, that's delicious and it filled me up, right? Mm -hmm. Or that doesn't taste quite right to me and, um, and I don't want to eat any more of it, right? Those are, those are completely legitimate ways to address a bowl of spaghetti. And, it's also legitimate to say, I wonder what's making that sauce taste like that. Maybe there's some pumpkin seed in it. Um, was that pumpkin seed soaked or ground before it was put in? And what exact kind of pepper? Like, those are also really legitimate ways to approach. And so when we go to poetry, we can simply say, that tastes good and it fills me up, right? That's a, that's a completely acceptable um, thing to say about a poem. Or something about that makes me uncomfortable or makes me a little queasy and I don't want to keep going into it. That's also a completely legitimate thing. Or you could say, what's happening with these lines? What exactly is that? You know, we could parse it like we do with the spices in a sauce, right? Yeah. Because we're working at the next level. We're trying to duplicate it. We're trying to replicate it. But to feel comfortable simply experiencing something as sustenance, as something that tastes good or doesn't, that's okay. Um, and those are ways, like, I don't think for the most part, um, we're asked with, with music, for instance. Maybe once we get into music that was written 200 years ago or more, but with contemporary music for the most part, it's I like it or I don't. It sounds good to me, I wanna dance to it or I don't. And then the next levels of music listeners do that. Oh, is this on an eight, eight time scale? And is this in B sharp? And like those next things, I couldn't tell you those things, but that doesn't yeah. mean I can't appreciate music. So I think that for me, circling all the way back to what you're saying about like all those, um, all those things that you experienced when you were reading Trophic Cascade and the fact that you were able, even when I sometimes was kind of hitting some pretty difficult um, statements about our culture and things that you were able to kind of move through comfortably. Like that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I'm trying to just give you a nice yummy bowl of spaghetti that fills you up <laughs> right? yeah. um, and nourishes you in some way. Well, it, I, I don't, Spaghetti doesn't quite do it justice, doesn't but I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is this is this is a full meal. <laughs> if it's anything, it's a full, full meal. Spice All meal. Right. Yeah, that was that was perfect. That was a great way to talk about it. I th I think too, people are intimidated when you put the word art in front of something. So if it's poetic or art after poetic art visual art, musical art. If you add art to it, the first thing that I hear, and this, this is just experiencing with my own personal, you know, my, my little personal tribe, my family, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's the first, that's the, mm -hmm. that's the first go-to. I don't get it. That it is a way for them to step away from it without having to go deeper or feel intimidated, I think, sometimes. One thing that I've, I've learned, and I, I came back to poetry in a very strange way. When I was younger, I used to write, but there was a period of life for me that it wasn't what I needed where I was. It, it went away for a long time. And then my life took a different track and I went down the visual art path, got the joy beat out of me. Mm. And I still do visual art, but for very different reasons now. And I've done the teaching and all that. And come back to this place where all of a sudden words mattered so much. And I started this exploration and that's probably not the, the best way to go about it, but I just started, I started reading and any poet I heard about, I'd find a copy. I'd find it used. I, any way, any way to get my hands on a copy of their book to go from poet to poet to poet, to look at their words and to try to understand and to try to, not, uh, you know, analyze it to death, 
but to look for look for the source behind the words and try to figure out what it takes to get there. I think that's a that's not a typical reaction these days. Yeah, I got I, I got I got tangential. I apologize. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that I think it actually kind of is right now in this um, COVID moment and um it's it's not just covid it's you know there's a there's a kind of a, a severe economic crisis um for so many people there's the health a, a covid and other um mm. health and health access crises there's now the fact that that we really can't travel um outside of the united states um what are there 28 countries beyond um the us that we are allowed to enter um, at this moment because of COVID um, and, and even traveling within the U.S. is, is restricted and difficult in some ways. Um, and so there's a kind of isolation and, and really loneliness. And then the kind of larger uh, environmental and climate crisis, which we are seeing through these wildfire fires through the American West, through the hurricanes or storms that are battering the East Coast right now, through that derecho that hit um, Iowa and Illinois, even if we're not outside as much as we might be in a normal summer to experience the hottest summer on mm -hmm. record, we are experiencing these um, kind of catastrophic changes. I think all of those things are actually pushing people to poetry mm. in ways that I um, haven't seen um, in some time. So there's there's a real uptick in poetry readership um, right now. And there's, uh, I think, a commiserate uptick in people trying to, to write and to participate mm -hmm. in um, the, the poetic art um, as a producer, as opposed to simply a consumer of it. Yeah. And so, I think that that also goes to the fact that poetry, because it asks us to engage with both kind of narrative logic sometimes in the poetry, like what I write, which is often just very narrative storytelling kind of mm -hmm. poetry, but also musical logic and sensual logic and, um, and sometimes kind of uh, in some poetries, poetry kind, uh, a kind of a, illogical logic right that yes. that gets you gets you to some some new kind of way of seeing because it is disruptive of the ways that we normally speak and see and talk all of those things are useful in a time where where the the news is overwhelming mm. and difficult to trust and so poetry what is that what is that all line um that you can't get the news from poetry, but people die here every day for lack of what is found there, right? Mm. I think people are looking for what is found there in poetry right now. It's difficult to get the news from poetry, yeah. um, but people die every day for lack of what is found there. I think people are looking, um, looking to poetry and it's, 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 it's medicine. Now do, you know, because of where we find ourselves with COVID and everything else that's going on, um, it, it, there's been this mass unveiling of so many things from the environment to um, culture to, um, you know, illness, insurance, everything. What, what do you turn to? Who are, the, who are the writers that you turn to? Or do you feel more compelled to produce when you're, when you're faced with just overwhelming circumstances? Well, also, I have a young child. I have a school-aged child. So, you know, what I would do <laughs> if um, I didn't have a, 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 a frightened school-aged child who yeah. I had to spend most of my waking hours um, caring for is a little different than what I am doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's so I need true. To, I need to clarify that. Um, um, and though I am, I'm reading a lot. Um, I read myself to sleep as opposed to watching my phone to sleep. Um, I now put my phone on the entire other side of the room and don't, and then wake up in the morning 
and get my writing and reading time in before I engage with the phone at all. So it's usually about 12 hours of no phone, um, which is about the only thing that's kept me sane. <laughs> I think it's just that just pretending it's not there. <laughs> um, and so I'm reading a lot. Um, and I read I read really, really widely. I read both nonfiction and, and poetry and some fiction occasionally. Um, I, I read classics of the 20th century and the 19th century. And then I read like super, super contemporary um, works, lots of first books, lots of new books um, I end up reading. So for me, it's like, a, it's a volume thing rather than a deep dive, right? It's okay. like, what's everybody saying? I'm just like, I'm, I'm always like, I, also I feel like part of what got me into writing was a kind of loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, um, this period right now is in some ways reminding me of two other periods in my life, which were also pretty productive reading and writing periods. And those are junior high and graduate school. <laughs> um, and those are both periods where I felt pretty isolated, um, fairly lonely. My sleep was dysregulated and, um, and I didn't really get to, I didn't get to, talk to or see the people who I wanted to talk to and see as much as I wanted to talk to them and see them. And so I just created characters on the page and I got to talk to whoever I wanted to talk to um, in whatever ways. And I got to read literature. And so then you have like a cadre of people to talk to and communicate with and, and gossip with and lives yeah. to enter into. And so reading, I think, um, for a person like me is a, is a way out of loneliness. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and then if you read my writing, it's, it's really, it's highly populated. Like my, my poems have lots of people in them. Right. And people just show up and I'm like, oh, what's this person doing there? But there they are now. And I'm having, um, I'm engaging with them in some way. And I also think um, I've always thought about, the other than human world as, as people and as characters in those same kinds of ways, right? And so if a jellyfish shows up, a jellyfish is as good of, as, as Susan showing up, right? Like it's, it's like a being with whom I can have uh, an interaction um, yeah. that's revelatory of who both of us are. Yeah. In the poem that you read at the DNC, and I lost my paid characteristics of life, I mean, who do you speak for? You speak for the snail. And it is, it, you take these, um, these, these characters or these creatures that could so easily be overlooked and you shine a light on it so that it's seen not so much as just a snail, but it begins to become these people that you know, maybe you've overlooked in your own life. You know, when I'm reading, it's like, oh, what, what do I look at and not see? Right. You know, you, you do that in such a lovely way that, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before, might read the words, but then it's like, oh, wait a minute, that is, that is not what it says. <laughs> it is saying something totally different. And I, I, I'm either A, guilty, B, um, ashamed or see, it's like, oh, I, I see it now. You know, I recognize it. It, it, it. Not many poets do that the same way you do, at least not the ones that I've read. No, I don't think many people's minds work like mine, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> That's a pretty individual, <laughs> pretty individual mind. <laughs> Um, let's see. I, you know, th th this is a question that I am sure every, every person who's ever been interviewed get at, gets asked, what are some, what are some tools? What's some advice? And especially right now to just, um, try to access those words, to try to find that place that allows you to, to cope with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think one thing is for me, 
routine is important. Um, I cannot count on, I cannot count on accessing moments of inspiration without really regularly writing. Um, and accepting that a lot of that regular writing is going to be bad. Um, I, I, when I was younger, I was an athlete and I uh, played and I played piano um, competitively for years and then and then I just stopped, but <laughs> which is its own sad thing. I'm trying to learn again and it's really, it's, it's hard, right? And I know that if I just played for half an hour every day, it would stop being so hard, right? But mm. I, I, I don't, and so it's hard, right? And so that, it's a thing, like if, you, if I write for half an hour every day for a little while, it's gonna be really difficult and it's gonna look really ugly and messy and it's not gonna go anywhere um, and it's not gonna say anything I want it to say. And then one day, it will and it'll open up. And then I, oftentimes, actually a lot of what seemed messy and pointless um, is fodder for where you are now. Um, mm -hmm. It might not be as off course. And so that's my one piece of advice really is to just, um, to make a practice and that practice does not have to be eight hours a day. Again, I said I have this child now, so I don't get that. I don't get an eight-hour writing day, even though that was exactly what I thought this year was going to look like. 2020, for me also, did not turn out to be what I expected. So I have to get up early in the morning, and then I get about three hours if I still sleep for myself, right? If I make myself go to sleep early and I make myself wake up early, I can get three hours before the day gets started where I can write. And I have to honor that time. I have to be really um, diligent about that. But sometimes in that three hours, I really only get half an hour of writing. But that's what I demand of myself. I, I demand 30 minutes of, of directly engaging with the written word, um, like with myself writing the written word. But some of that other three hours may be reading. Some of that other three hours may be like revising things that I've already written. Um, it's, it's about, it's about, it's about creating, um, creating a sense that this is something, a priority. There's the word I'm looking for, that this is a priority to you. Um, and so I think that that allows that open space. But let me just say this again, um, that, that 30 minutes may not work, three hours may not work. If it's five minutes a day where you say, just for these five minutes, I'm gonna be really, really careful about language. I'm gonna think about what it is that I'm seeing around me and how I can describe that as specifically as possible. And I'm gonna just take five minutes of notes on the world around me or my memories or whatever. I tell you what, those five minutes will add up to something, right? Yeah. Um, and they do the same work of creating priority and, and setting a value system for your psyche. Um, as I think eight, eight hours could. That's great. Yeah, I mean, simple advice, um, but probably the hardest, the hardest to follow is to develop that discipline to do it. It's really hard, especially when you think you suck, right? <laughs> which is how we feel most of the time. And it's also probably true a lot of the time, right? Like we're not just making that up. So it's really hard to come and do this. And the world is not interested in our art. The world mm -hmm. is interested in us for all different kinds of reasons that don't have anything to do with that and so to to make a priority of something that nobody else but you is interested in is is hard in general and I think hard specifically for a lot of women um, who were not trained to stand up for what we care for mm -hmm. um, and we're not trained uh, to to put ourselves first in these ways right and um, but you should. <laughs> yeah, I second that. So it, it, I'm going to ask one more question, and it, it may be good or bad. What's the one thing you wish someone would ask you in an interview? 
You know, that makes me think of when I first started teaching, I used to have this question on all of my exams, which was, if you were writing this exam, what question would you have put on the exam? Now answer it. And my students always used to say that that was the hardest question on, on the exam. Um, because you want to come up with the best question to really show off your knowledge and um, But I think what ends up happening with my writing a lot because it does um, It does talk about history um, It talks about environmental concerns and it, it talks about family and you know, it's topical mm -hmm. um, And thematic and so what ends up happening very frequently is there's conversations about topics and themes and um, and ideas and not so much his talk about craft and um how i think about the line and how i think about breath or how i think about um, the arrangement of words on the page or how i use metaphors right and so i feel like i like talking about that i like talking about craft and because that's what I end up geeking out on and that's why that's why poetry right as yeah. opposed to some other literary art yeah so what when you when you look at words that maybe you've just spent 30 minutes just kind of free writing at what point you know where does the craft then kick in and you start to go ah okay so this is what I'm gonna do next Mm hmm there is a point where I start to to recognize patterns and I start to augment those patterns and then there'll be another point where I start to notice when those patterns are hobbling me and I need to break those patterns um, and then I begin to arrange the the lines you know, how many syllables will there be per line? How many breaths are there going to be per line? How many breaths will I insert into the line? And so therefore, what kind of punctuation am I going to be using? Uh, will I be using standard punctuation or M dashes or blank spaces to create different kinds of breaths? Um, and then there's this kind of movement back and forth for me between the written page and the typed page because playing the moving back and forth from handwriting to the computer reveals things. If it starts to get really tedious to handwrite it, then if it's too tedious for me to handwrite it, it's probably gonna be too tedious for somebody to read it. <laughs> you know, and so like, what's that, what's the pace and the velocity and how do I keep that velocity moving through, through sound, through punctuation, through line breaks and those kinds of questions. And so, and then like, how do that, how does those things um, complement the themes and the subject matter and the um, and the kind of mm, intellectual narrative motion of the poem. Yeah. Do you um, when you start a new piece as you gradually craft it? Is do you become super intentional about um, what it's going to look like? Because, like I said, this is a, a visually to even just like page through it no two pieces are the same and it's yeah. very visually pleasing or do you kind of back into that after the fact and go I think because of what I'm seeing it maybe needs to be a little different I think it usually probably happens the ha halfway through that its form starts to reveal itself there are some poems that the that the something about the form or the the kind of style, you know, the one of the poems that you mentioned in our preamble to the to conversation was um, because it looked hotter that way, which is a um, long poem with a run-in title. The title kind of runs into the poem, and it's essentially this kind of story about these girls who wear their hair down because it looks better that way but it's also this kind of description of of girlhood and kind mm -hmm. of coming into the a self and a knowledge of beauty and it's a golden shovel so on the on the right hand margin of the poem you can read Gwendolyn Brooks rewheeled cool mm -hmm. and I was commissioned to write that poem somebody okay. asked me to write a golden shovel and I did um 
And so because I knew I had to come back to we real cool, we skip school, like that directed a lot of what was happening in the poem, but then really exciting things happened in the poem, like um, we turn back to the cotton gin in history. Um, in the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, it's we thin gin, and I didn't want it to be gin like the drink, because that's too on the nose to Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, yeah. Sin is another one of the Gwendolyn Brooks words, which I turn to seen the Spanish. And then there's like this whole whole scene that then happens in the Spanish class, right? Yeah. So the, the, the requirement of the form created the possibilities of the poem. Um, so that, that, I don't know if that's halfway through or, or earlier than that, that that pushes. But in terms of the layout on the page, I, I, I don't want a book where you open and every page is aligned to the left margin, just exactly the same. The title poem, Trophic Cascade, is aligned to the right margin. Um, and that poem, I finished. Um, I wrote the whole poem. I finished it, and it felt not finished. Mm. And I just realized, well, my whole life shifted because of what happened and what's being described in this poem. My, the entire landscape of my life has shifted. And so let me just flip the margin, right? Just that one little change changes entirely how you read that poem and experience that poem because it's just split, um, aligned to the right margin. And that was late. That was the last thing that happened to that poem, mm. right? Was that flip. And, and that was what brought the poem to completion. So, so in short, I think what I'm telling you is somewhere halfway through, sometimes at the beginning and sometimes all the way at the end, but it's always a really, it's a dynamic conversation between form on the page and, um, message or meaning or experience that I want you to pull out of the poem. What is the longest period of time it's taken you to write a single piece? And have you had any come to you fully formed? I think the first time I heard any poets say that that had even happened, Mary Oliver had talked about one of her pieces that just came to her fully formed. I'd never heard of such a thing. <laughs> Nothing comes to me fully formed. Does, has that ever happened to you? And um, how long is the longest? So I think there's two poems in Trophic Cascade that came fully formed and neither of them are long. <laughs> <laughs> um, one is the poem Brevity, as in four girls, Sunday dresses, bone, ash, bone, ash, bone. Mm. And I had a poem then that I wrote for the 1619 uh, New York Times magazine insert from last August that somebody asked me to write about, the editor asked me to write about the Birmingham bombing and, but didn't want a previously written piece. And so I then ended up writing another poem um, about the creation of On Brevity in which I talk about the fact that it actually was longer then it appears in the poem, there was, there was one more sentence, which was the end, which I removed from the poem and the book, because in fact, that kind of um, terrorism has not ended. And so mm. that would be false. But the poem that came, I guess, fully formed in terms of language is there are these moments of permission um, between space, between raindrops, there is space, certainly, but I call it all rain. I rest in the undrenched intervals while Callie is sleeping, my old self necessary and imperceptible as air. So that's the whole poem. I was flying through a rainstorm um, on the way to give a reading in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with my nine-year-old lap child passed out on my lap. And, um, and I wrote those lines, title the whole thing on a cocktail napkin, you know, the little water napkin that you get. And then I was like, I'll go back and expand that later. And I realized I'd said everything I needed to say, but the poem appears scattered like raindrops all over the page. And I didn't write it like that on the cocktail napkin. So to me, even then, 
I don't feel like it came fully formed. Like all the words came that way in exactly that order, but how it was going to be structured and shaped as a kind of tactile object still required work. Yeah. So there's a poem at the end of Trophic Cascade, the poem, and it's not the very last poem, I think, the second to last poem called Commute, which Trophic Cascade was published, yeah, it's the second to last poem. Um, Trophic Cascade was published in 2017. I think I wrote Commute in 1998 or 2000 or something like that. So I wrote that poem some 15 years mm. before it showed up in the book. And maybe that's another thing that I can tell people is like, don't burn your drafts right? Like, I had faith in that poem. It just didn't fit in the three books that preceded it. This was its family. It just, like, mm. it was just waiting for its family. Like, it was fine. It just didn't have the right company yet. Um, and so that kind of, that's a kind of patience. I have a new poem that's not collected in Trophic Cascade, but it's uh, online. It was published a couple of years ago in Orion, actually. And I say that that poem took me 17 years, six days, and four hours to write. Because that's pretty specific. <laughs> it's very specific, right? The newspaper clipping um, that it's based around, I clipped 17 years ago and I've just carried around with me as an object of fascination that I have tried. I have tried so many times to write a poem into. And then I taught a six day writing workshop where I was talking to these students for six days about how to, how to dramatically work with failed drafts and, and how to like create new work based on the kinds of inspirations and the observations around them. And then I came home from that, woke up the next morning, got an email from Amy Nosukumatadal, who was the Orion poetry editor at the time, who said, can you send me a poem by the end of the day? And I had nothing, <laughs> I had nothing in my, um, to send her. And then I just, in four hours, I wrote the poem. But it wasn't just four hours. It was the right. six days of having really talked about how to do this and 17 years of carrying the poem <laughs> around. But that is, that, that's such a great thing to hear. Because I think, you know, I mean, I, I go through this. When I was in school, there was a, um, a philosopher that came and spoke to us and he called himself a failed painter because of all, the, all these reasons he was a failed painter. But what it got down to is he just wasn't doing it anymore and had gotten enough distance to say, oh, it really wasn't that good. But, you know, I, I hope someday I don't sit and go, I'm a failed writer because all these ideas that I've scripted. And, and I, I know other people who have notebooks full of things that they've jotted down, but have never, never had closure on them. So that's encouraging for people who have scads of torn bits of paper and notebooks and all these little things just hovering out there. I think too, it's just, believing in the of the in the power of collage right I mean I joked earlier that I don't think people pe most people's minds work like mine because I'm super associative and I like leap from place to place to place which like is often like a great weakness in the in the quote-unquote real world because you know in terms of just like steady concentration but it's a superpower for me in poetry it just allows me um it allows me to do things and take risks that I wouldn't otherwise take to make associations and create juxtapositions that um, that are surprising to me and mm -hmm. hopefully to my readers as well. It also allows me to read in that really all over the place kind of way, which means lots of different kinds of inspirations. Um, and I think there's a lot of writers who have created just fantastic books from all those little clippings and smidges. I'm thinking of that incredible book, Dicty, um, and uh, the Ann Carson's Knox, right? These are, these are, those are just two books that pop right to mind um, 
by authors who create collage work that creates a um, creates a whole mm. in the process. Well, is we get I'm watching the time. You've been very generous with your time. I usually close one way, but I'm wondering if I could just ask you to close out the podcast with another poem. I'd be happy to. I think it would just be a great way to wrap it all up and share your words with, with the listeners. And okay. then I'll fill in the details later. <laughs> all right. Do we have more details where oh, we're just supposed to talk about? Social media and where they can oh, find yeah. you. And... Yeah, I'm just, I'm Camille Dungy, CamilleDungy.com. I've got my Instagram is Camille Dungy. I just, I, you know. And she posts lots of picture of food. I, I love so, the pictures food of food. My favorite food. is your rainbow cake. Oh, that was so much fun. It took so long to make that rainbow cake, but it was delicious. And then for the 4th of July, we made a red, white, and blue layer cake with Skittles in the middle. So it had a full oh, rainbow fun. inside. The I middle. love it. Um, I am looking for a poem for you right now um, that feels right. Should I do the characteristics of life since we've refer referenced it a couple times? Sure. All right. Characteristics of life. A fifth of animals without backbones could be at risk of extinction, say scientists. BBC Nature News. Ask me if I speak for the snail. And I will tell you, I speak for the snail. I speak of underneathedness and the welcome of mosses, of life that springs up, little lives that pull back and wait for a moment. I speak for the damselfly, water ski, mollusk, the caterpillar, the beetle, the spider, the ant. I speak from the time before spinelessness was frowned upon. Ask me if I speak for the moon jelly. I will tell you one thing today and another tomorrow and I will be as consistent as anything alive on this earth. I move as the currents move with the breezes. What part of your nature drives you? You in your cubicle ought to understand me. I filter and filter and filter all day. Ask me if I speak for the Nautilus. And I will be silent as the nautilus shell on a shelf. I can be beautiful and useless, if that's all you know to ask of me. Ask me what I know of longing, and I will speak of distances between meadows of night-blooming flowers. I will speak the impossible hope of the firefly. You with the candle burning and only one chair at your table must understand such wordless desire. To say it is mindless is missing the point. A quick reminder, you can find Camille at CamilleDungy.com and on Instagram at CamilleDungy. And make sure you grab a copy of Trophic Cascade, as well as Guidebook to a Relative Stranger. We didn't get a chance to talk about this book, but her debut foray into prose is a powerful work crafted in her unique poetic texture. I'm sitting at my desk, my own personal desk, something I haven't done in months. I didn't realize how much I missed it. The small container of pencils, and I love a good pencil by the way, my homely catch-all container, my old typewriter, the stack of books I wanted to read pre-COVID that I've managed to dust around but not read. It's strange to sit here and look at the normalcy of it while holding all the change that has taken place since I last worked here. I'm a different person, as well are we all at this point. What I have accrued, aside from an obsessively large pile of new poetry books to read and the results of too many chips, is a clearer picture of what I really need to be doing 
With well over a hundred prompts, I've emailed myself to someday work into poems or ball up and make fire starters, a list of poets I would love to talk with, and more ideas than I know what to do with. It feels a bit antithetical to slow things down. I'm going to try being more intentional with what I focus on, what gets my attention, or what drives my choices, so that I can be more present and provide more of the really good stuff. That said, a huge thank you to those of you listening. I love spending time here with you and appreciate every single comment, encouragement, occasional criticism, and recommendation you send my way. I'd love to hear some of the positive things that you've come out with from 2020 so far. What realizations have you made? What new work have you created? Has your perspective changed? Have you learned something? Have you taken steps to make your world a better place? It's hard to find good in some of the situations we find ourselves in. So much has changed, but one thing that has not changed is our need for kindness. Kindness for each other, kindness for ourselves, And as you go into your days, I hope that you do what it is you have uniquely been created to do. Your voice, your work, your presence is vital to make good out of what isn't. Do the hard work of creating. Write kind, paint kind, love kind, live kind. And that's it for today from Poet Kind. Look for us on Instagram and Twitter. Say hello and share what you're up to. Until next time, take care.